So uh, we are still in Romans, uh, back in Romans here this fall, uh, Romans chapter 12. And um, you're, you'll notice that the handout looks a little bit different today than it normally does. Um, and the reason for that is we talked about in the beginning of Romans chapter 12, this idea of, of, of um, because of the mercies of God, with the mercies of God in view, we are to be a living sacrifice, right? A holy sacrifice to God. That this, this odd idea of, of sacrifices are dead things, are things that become dead, but we are to be living ongoing sacrifices, right? That, that we are to offer ourselves to him, be conformed into the image of, of his son, and walk in this new way of thinking, that we have this renewed way of thinking, that we put aside kind of our old way of thinking about things, and we take on this new way of thinking about things. And one of the ways that that fleshes itself out, we saw last week, is in this idea of thinking too highly about yourself, to view your, to inflate your view of yourself. That's an old way of thinking. The new way is to view yourself accurately, not to, not to, to view yourself too low or too high, but to get as close to an accurate picture of who you are and what your role is in the body of Christ as possible. And, and Paul is continuing with that idea today of reshaping our thinking. But how he does that, and Paul tends to do this in, in different places in his writings, is he kind of rapid fires a whole bunch of different things that don't really relate to one another, but he's kind of just, it's like a stream of consciousness where he's listing off all this renewed ways of thinking, that how we should now think. And because it's just kind of a, 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 a blurting out of all of this stuff, just what's coming to his head, I'm going to try to, to present it that way. Because I could, a lot of these are, are, are really deep theological things that we could think really, really deeply about. But I don't think that was Paul's intention. So I, I could spend time and break down each phrase and, and spend a lot of time doing that. But I think it would take something away from what Paul is trying to do, which is just to lay out a whole bunch of ways of new thinking. And I think uh, my encouragement to us would be, as we look at these things, to not try to take in the whole thing, because it's going to be like trying to drink from a fire hose, right? But to find one, two, three things that we need to go, yeah, I need to change the way I'm thinking about that thing. So let me pray for us and we'll get into it. Lord, uh, we just thank you so much for our time together. We thank you that we, we get to honor you and worship, that we get to um, speak of, of your, your great love, your, who you are as, as, as our God, and also all the great deeds that you have done that we, um, that we honor you for uh, this morning. And that we get to be in your word. Uh, it's so good to be in your word. Help us to, um, to reshape our thinking. We, we're prone to think in ways that don't align with your ways of thinking. And, um, and, and we don't want to remain in that kind of default setting. We want to be transformed. We want to be different. And, and that starts with our, us thinking differently about things. So help us to think differently about this list of things this morning. 
and, uh, and help your word just to be clear. Help me to get out of, out of the way and just allow your word um, to, to, to shine before us this morning and transform us. Pray this all in your name. Amen. So he starts with this. Let love, <laughs> let love be without hypocrisy. Literally, it's two words that is just love unhypocritically. Uh, hypocrisy at its very nature is just play acting. It, it's, it's pretending. It, it's what actors do on TV shows all the time, right? You're watching a TV show. Someone's pretending to be someone they're not. They're saying things that aren't their own words, and they're, they're, they're putting on a show for other people. For other people, and it's for entertainment, right? That's that's where that kind of acting belongs is, is within entertainment. It does not belong for us in love, in us loving other people. This is love with loving without pretending, loving without pr- pretending to be something or 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 have some sort of affection that we don't have. It's sincere love. It, the bottom line is just don't be fake. Don't be fake about your love. Be genuine in your love for people. There, it's easy for particularly churches, I think, to get stuck in a culture of niceness. Do you know what I mean by that? Like we're just going to be a bunch of nice people because it's nice to be nice people, right? And so we're just going to be a bunch of nice people, but niceness is not love, Right? Sometimes, if we create a culture of niceness among us, then when, it's, when we have to do that kind of hard love thing, that tough love thing, when we need to say what needs to be said, but I'm not going to like hearing that, or you're not going to like hearing it, I'm not going to like saying it, that, that difficult kind of love can't exist in a culture of niceness, right? Instead, we need to be seeking genuine love, real love. And, and this doesn't mean, years ago, I remember working through this myself, because I struggled with um, disingenuousness. Disingenu- Can I say that? Um, I struggled with play-acting my love, with hypocritical love, uh, because I wanted people to kind of like me, and so I just wanted to be, you know, the nice guy who, who you know, who's always, you know, always showing something that other people want to see. But sometimes I felt like being a jerk, right? Sometimes I felt like being rude to someone. And so as I was working through this, I was like, I just need to be real. I just need to be genuine. So if I feel like I want to be a jerk, then I'm going to be a jerk, right? If I feel like I'm, I, I want to be rude, then I'm going to be rude because if I'm not rude in that moment, then that's some sort of hypocrisy on my side. But the problem is, that's a misunderstanding of what love is. Love isn't me in that moment feeling feelings for you. See, this is where we get love all wrong, at least God's kind of love. It's not me feeling some sort of deep affection for you. It's me doing good to you. It's me self-sacrificially going, regardless of what I'm feeling, regardless of what I'm doing, I'm going to choose to do good to you. I'm going to choose to say good things to you. Not always easy things, but things that are right and good. That's love. 
And so it's not hypocrisy at all to feel a little ornery and to express care and love for someone. That's actually, that is what love is at its very core. At least God's kind of love. It's unselfish. It's sacrificial. Hypocritical love typically has my best in mind. I want to look good. I want to look like a pretty good guy. Nate's a nice guy, right? I want to be that guy. God's kind of love is I have your best in mind, even if that maybe doesn't make me look as good because I want to love you. So this first one is just to pursue genuine, other-focused, God-glorifying love. This is renewed thinking, new thinking. He goes on and says, hate what is evil. He actually says, abhor what is evil. But I don't use the word abhor very often. I don't know about you. Um, it's not a part of my regular lexicon. It, it, it is, this is hate, but it's actually a strong version of hate, okay? So I really, really am to hate, vehemently dislike, detest, loathe, despise all that is evil, all that is wicked, all that is corrupt. Now, the important thing with this one is we got to ask ourselves, who defines evil, right? Who defines that? Does our culture define what's evil? Evil? Does our society define what's evil? Does our group of friends define what is wicked and evil? Those things are going to define evil for us, but is that where we're to take our cues on what we are to abhor, what we are to hate vehemently? And of course, the answer to that is no. Who defines evil? God defines evil. Sometimes we're going to think something actually is probably really, really good. And God's going to say, no, that thing is actually evil. And so this becomes a faith thing. This becomes a God, I'm not going to trust in what and how I view things, how I look at evil. I'm going to trust in how you define evil. God of the universe, perspective far above my own. I'm super limited. You are unlimited. I'm going to trust you when you say this is not good. When you say this is actually destructive and terrible and no good, even when I think, actually, that's probably a pretty good thing, I'm wrong, right? If my views on that don't align with God's views, where do I need to go? I need to align with his view. And once I've aligned with his view, I need to hate what he hates because evil is evil and we should hate it. See, I don't think we have any problem hating, detesting, abhorring rape, incest, terrorism, mass shootings. There are things that we really, really, really hate. And by the way, we should hate those things, right? But we need to have an equal distaste for lying and deception and greed and jealousy and gossip and sexual lust. We need to hate those things. That's renewed thinking. To hate what God hates. To hate evil. Because he's the one who should define that, right? Next one he says, embrace or, or cling to what is good. Cling to what is good. 
I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Uh, I have definitely had this experience. Or maybe I forget to put the dryer sheet in the dryer, and I've got a shirt that kind of does this to me all day, and I'm like, oh, you know, trying to pull it away because it's all stuck to me. It's, it's clinging to me, right? It's to bind yourself closely, to embrace, to wrap your arms around good. Attach yourself to good. Attach yourself to things that are useful and beneficial and meet the highest standard. I, I really like this word cling because it's actually used in Matthew 19 when Jesus is talking about marriage, actually. One more there, Glenn. He says this. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we have a guess as to which word is, Greek word is used there? Joined, right? He's describing the intimacy that exists in marriage, that we cling to one another, right? In this deep relationship. In fact, I'm doing a wedding on Saturday. I'm thinking a lot about this for them, right? This clinging together. And then you go back, and you think about this in regards to good. One more click there, Glenn. In regards to good, that we are to marry good. We are to be in a deep relationship with good, trying to find out what's going on with good, understand good, um, serve what is good. And again, we've got to consider who defines good, right? Does our culture define good? No. Because our culture is definitely going to say this is good when it's actually evil, right? So we can't, we can't rely on them to define that for us. We can't rely on our culture. We can't rely on our friends even to define this for us. We've got to let God set the standard of what good is, which again is this faith thing. We've got to trust him. So many conversations I have when people are struggling with particular things is they're, what they're really struggling with is that they look at a particular sin and they go, actually, I think that's a good in my life. Well, we got we to change that kind of thinking. We've got to start with changing that kind of thinking and going, I'm dumb because I think that's good. That's actually evil. Got to believe that when God says something is good, that it is good. Got to believe that speaking the truth when it costs me something is actually good, not evil, not a bad thing in my life. That committing to biblical standards on sex and marriage is a good, even when we're going to be ridiculed for it and looked down for it. That having fellowship with Christ in his suffering by our own suffering is actually good. Whoa. Why? Because we align our thinking with his thinking. And we embrace it. Hold on to it for dear life. Then he says, on a different subject, I see all these things don't really relate, most of them, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This is a really funny statement uh, in the Greek because it's, devoted is actually the word love, and it's like familial love, family or, or deep friendship connection kind of love, deep relationship kind of love. So he's basically saying, have family love uh, 
for one another in sibling love, which is brotherly and sisterly love. It's very repetitive, but he's trying to make a point here. He's like, you know how families love each other with that kind of deep level of commitment, that deep level of affection, that, that, that intensity for one another? Melissa and I uh, have a, a, a joke that's sort of not a joke. In our, it, it, sometimes we go, you know, I, I don't know if I really want to do that thing, whatever it is, for, for my family, but we do for family. Anybody else use that phrase? I think we got it from some TV show, right? But it's kind of a joke. Yeah, we do for family. But you do do for family, right? Why? Because they're family. And sometimes that's difficult, and sometimes that's not, not an easy thing to accomplish. But he's saying, do this with one another. He's talking to us. Family love one another. Be brothers and sisters in Christ. I kind of picked up, you guys probably noticed, uh, especially with guys, I'll say brother to them a lot. I kind of picked that up. Uh, because somehow, when I use the word brother, I just called Mike brother the other day, and I thought, that's a little weird. Mike's a lot older than me. He's probably more like a father to me, but he's my brother, right? Because for me, when I say, hey, brother, to it, for me, it creates an instant connection that already exists between Mike and I, but I just get to state it, right? Love each other like family. This is renewed thinking. And especially in our society and our culture, because we live in a highly individualistic culture, which makes ideas like this hard, harder to attain than other cultures. But he says, commit yourself to this kind of love for one another. He goes on and says, give preference to one another in honor. Give preference. I actually like the... Um, the ESV on this, because it says, outdo one another in showing honor. I actually think that's closer to what he's implying here. It could go either way, honestly, but I think that's closer to what he's implying, because this word give preference actually means to be in the first position, to lead the way, to be the top dog in something. So you get what he's saying? He's like, be the top dog in showing each other honor. Be the first place in showing each other honor. Which, by the way, showing each other honor is to make someone have a sense of value and worth. To lift them up. I don't know if you remember this. I remember this when I was in elementary school. But, like, it would be time to line up for lunch, right? They'd go, line up for lunch, or some bell would ring or whatever. And, and everybody was, like, rushing over there. Why? Because we wanted to be first in line, Right? And maybe, like, if, we, if someone was talking to someone else, we might slip in front of them and be like, ah, gotcha. That's what he's talking about here. He's like, be first in line. Like, be, like, clamoring to be the one who outdoes everyone else in showing everyone else honor. In lifting each other up. Not just when it suits you, not just when it feels good to do so, but all the time be lifting one another up. This is a new way to think about things. Because the old way is definitely about you showing me honor, right? Me trying to gain respect from you in all the ways that I could try to gain respect from you. Like, that's an old way to think about things. Spend your efforts trying to show respect to others. 
He goes on, he says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not lagging behind actually means to be lazy. Don't be lazy. Don't be hesitant in diligence. And diligence is stepping up when it's time. When it's time to take action, actually taking action. Don't be slow when it's time to go. Don't hesitate and step back when it's time to step up. And a lot of times, I know I, know I have this in me, that, that sometimes I see, okay, I need to step up. I need, I need to go do that. I need to be involved in that. But then there's like this fear of what might happen if I actually step out there. I know I need to step out there. I know that's what I'm being called to, but I don't know what's going to happen. I says, trust me, right? I'm calling you to step into that. And it really reveals in me in those moments a lack of trust in God's sovereignty over that situation. Because isn't God going to take care? If he's taking care of me here, isn't he going to take care of me here? Of course he is. But there looks really scary. It's being ready. And it's, to be, and it's fervent in spirit, which literally is just to do it enthusiastically. Like, I'm ready. Let's go. What's next? What do you have for me? It's being in a place where you're, you're ready, you're anticipating when the green light comes. I'm going. I've got my foot ready on the gas for that moment when the green light comes. I'm, go, I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone. There it is. Green. I'm going. It's being ready to step up to serve the Lord. Which, by the way, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, serving the Lord applies to every area of our life, right? There's no compartmentalization here. Our lives are to be sacrificed to the Lord. It's our spiritual act of worship, every moment of our life. So we're ready. We're ready to step up. What do you got for me, God? Now, the next three here, you can kind of group together. Um, I, I think he's, he's particularly kind of shifting his focus into how to face difficulties, how to face challenges in life. He says, rejoicing in hope. Rejoice in hope. Hope is being, is being forward thinking. I, I've said this before, but I don't understand the phrase you're so heaven-minded, you're no earthly good. That, doesn't, that, actually, that makes no biblical sense to me. Because being heaven-minded is every earthly good. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to have forward-thinking thoughts. Because if you believe God's promises, the future's good. Even if right now is not so great, and we're afraid that maybe next week or next month is not going to be so great. We know the future is good. And so that can actually bring happiness and joy and contentment to this moment when things aren't so good. Because I'm, I'm forward looking. I'm not looking at my circumstances right now. I'm, I'm rejoicing which means to shout for joy. 
It means to be excited about what's coming. Are we excited about what's coming? Like, this is great. You look at God's promises, and that should excite you. In fact, I've had a few conversations lately about kind of eschatology and its role. That's like end times things and its role among us and how, how much of a priority should that be and that kind of stuff. And, and, and I think its primary role is hope. Its primary role is for us to look ahead and go, God's got something good coming. A lot of times it's easy to rejoice when things are going my way right now, when today's a good day. A little harder when today's not a good day. But we need to keep our eyes ahead. He goes on, he says, persevering in tribulation. Persevering in tribulation. Persevering is literally to stay in place, to hold your ground, to maintain course. It's a picture of like a ship sailing through a hurricane, and you just got to keep going. Can't stop, you're going to sink. You got to keep going. Stay on course, stay on target, follow that compass to get where you're going. Our, I think our natural way of thinking is to, you know, avoid anything that's too hard. If you can avoid it, avoid it. When things get tough, back off. Find another way. Fold. Or, or, or find an escape. You know, maybe just find that through alcohol or drugs. You just need to escape life. Or find something new. Find a new job. Find new friends. Distance yourself from anything that's a little too uncomfortable or difficult. He says, stay on target. Just keep walking forward through it. Some of you I know can testify to the value of going through an extremely difficult time and just putting one foot in front of the other and keep going. Now, does that mean there's never, ever a time for change? No, that's not what this is saying. Of course there's time for change. But our default position should be to stick with things, to stick it out, to keep pushing through, and don't fold when things get tough. It's a different way of thinking. And then he says, devoted to prayer. Now, you could say that that's, this is just an independent uh, phrase. It might be an independent phrase. I think probably Paul is in the mindset of going through difficult times. Be devoted to prayer. Whether it's difficult times or good times, be devoted to prayer. Devoted is, is another great word. You know, I love words. Um, we, we find the same word in Mark chapter 3. This is Jesus. It says, Jesus told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. So he's got this crowd pushing in on him, and he's like, hey guys, go get a boat, make sure it's, it's, it's ready to go. Make sure it's at hand, so if I need to escape to the boat, I can. That's devoted. Be devoted to prayer. 
have it at hand at all times. This should be a consistent part of our lives, something you use regularly, a tool that's just at your disposal all the time. Don't limit it to be, having to be in a certain place at a certain time. That's not a bad thing, but don't limit it to that. This should be a ready, available tool for us at all times. Now, I think part of the reason why we, we, we kind of take it from the ready, readily available tool and make it into this, like, thing where it's like my devotional life type thing is that we, we have an overinflated view of what prayer is. Like we picture it as some sort of ritualistic, holy moment. There's, there's holiness that's involved with it. But at its very nature, it's just communication, communicating with God. I don't know how many people I, I've been in small groups or whatever. I'm like, hey, would you pray for us? And they're like, well, I'm not really good at that. What does that even mean? Like, you're not going to talk? We've been just, just been talking for the last hour. You're, you seem to be fine. Your, your mouth works fine. Like, just talk. So say, have this ability to communicate with God at hand. This is something I've really pushed for over the years in my relationship with God, as I want to be someone who's just constantly kind of talking to God. Like, I'm having conversations with other people. You guys might have even noticed. It's like, man, Nate seemed to tune out there for a second. I'm going to claim that I was praying, okay? I don't know that that's true. I might have just tuned out. But, but a lot, I just, sometimes I just, I need wisdom when I'm talking to you. You guys have major issues. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, but I just, I, I just need to talk to God. I just, I, I just, I just want to be in regular conversation with him. I want to have this thing ready at hand. That's the place we go when things are difficult. It's the tool we use. I think a lot of times when things are difficult, our first instinct is to, is to go to another person who will kind of hear us out, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Or we go to someone who we think maybe can help us with the problem or help fix the problem and make it better. Again, not a bad thing. But our first instinct, the thing that we should have ready at hand to use, should be talking to God about things. It's a different way of thinking about life. He goes on, he says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, Literally, uh, this is fellowshipping in the needs of the saints, which is kind of a weird idea. But it's, but it's partnering with others' needs. It's, it's, it's that Acts 1 idea that we talked about a couple months ago where we're, where we're holding things in common. You have a need, I want to partner with you in that need. I want to meet you where you're at and fellowship with you over that need and help meet your needs. Your need is my need. And, and this idea of practicing hospitality actually is an outgrowth of this idea. Um, at, its, at its core, practicing hospitality I don't think really exists anymore, at least the way it was used culturally back then. I, th- I think we've talked about this idea before, but at, at this time, you, you know, there weren't motels at every exit, right? But people traveled, and they needed a place to stay. And so hospitality was a normal thing in culture that you would allow someone to come and sleep at your house, eat your food, which is uncomfortable. Can we agree? 
Especially if this person's a stranger, someone that you don't really know very well, um, someone that's not from your household, it's a little uncomfortable. And so I, I think it would have been uncomfortable at that time, but people did this regularly, right? We, see, we actually see this a number of times in Scripture. And we might go, wow, that's, that's generous of them, but that was a normal thing. Come, come by my campfire, come eat my food, come stay in my tent. Like this was a normal thing, but not everyone did it. And particularly within Christian circles, this was a, a needed thing. In fact, as, as believers became more and more marginalized in the first century, there was less and less hospitality shown to them, especially Jewish believers with other Jews. Because, because to invite, to, to invite this, this heathen Jew who's, who's following this, this cult sect called Christianity, I'm going to bring that person into my house. I'm not eating with that person. That, that was a big deal. If, I, if I'm going to eat with someone, they got to be the right kind of person, and you're not the right kind of person. So he's like, you need to be practicing hospitality. Be viewing the needs of the saints. The saints need this. They need other things too. Now, I think we can use that idea and translate that into our culture a little bit. It may not be people staying at our houses, but it may be something else. But just fellowshipping in the needs of the saints called to that. He goes on, starts to get really, really, uh, really, really crazy here. It's going to get a little bit dicey, maybe a little, oh, maybe this is, I need to change my thinking on this. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless means to speak well of someone. Commend them. Praise them. Find the thing that's praiseworthy in their life and commend them for it. Speak about it. Tell other people about it. And he says, do that with those who are not speaking well of you. That enemy, that person who doesn't like you and talks behind your back all the time and a lot of times lets that thing that they're talking behind their back about you come out in their speech with you or maybe they're going to fake you know, do a little bit of hypocritical love. Oh, I love you. You're so great. And then behind your back, be telling people how much they hate you, right? But maybe they'll say it right to your face. And, and, and he's saying, you know what? That person, the natural response, our tendency will be to curse them, which means to speak ill of them, to hope they get theirs. And he says, don't do that. I know that's your, that's your default position is to, if someone's speaking badly about you, I'm sure you can find plenty to say bad about them. Speak up. What are you, a pushover? He says, choose to bless them. Choose to find the good in them and speak well of them. I'm just going to throw out a possible application of this. We might consider this concerning our political leaders. We, we, we probably, many of us, consider those on the opposite side of the political spectrum as enemies of us, maybe even persecutors of us. And I'm not saying that those things aren't true. Maybe they are. But, may, but, but, but maybe what we need to do is instead of be, becoming indignant about the way that they're treating us and tear them down every opportunity we get, Maybe we might look for the positives and go, man, I really appreciate this about 
that person. Just throwing that out. Definitely applies to people who don't like you very well, don't treat you very well. It's so natural when people hurt you with their words, when they're mean to you. It's, and everybody's going to justify it for you. They're going to go, yeah, rip them up. Tell us how bad they are, because they are bad. Look what they're doing to you. That's not the new way of thinking about things. He goes on, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice is to be, be happy. This is being happy for others. When, when someone else is happy, we're happy for them. We rejoice in their success. And then he gives the flip side is when they weep, when they're crying, when things are going on in their lives where they are emotionally distraught. Maybe they're not, they're, they don't have water coming out of their ears, but you are out of their ears. That would be weird. Water coming out of their eyes. That's where tears come out of. Um, but, but you know that they're just in pain. They're just hurting. And I think this is less about like laughter or tears or feeling the exact same way that person is feeling, trying to feel the exact same way that person is feeling. But it's about meeting other people where they are emotionally. It's so easy, I think it's our default position to really be focused on my feelings, how I am today, how, what my successes or my troubles. It's really, really, really easy to, to be inward focused about our lives and what's going on with us. But we're called to, to deep relationship with one another where we care enough about each other that when you're going through something painful, it's painful for me to see you go through that. Or something really great is going on in your life and my life is not going so great right now, but something's going great in your life and I'm really excited for you. It, it's, it's, it's bringing our focus away from ourselves and what's going on with us. That's the old way of thinking and putting it on others, meeting them where they are, saying, I care about you, so I'm going to care about what's going on in your life, good or bad. I'm going to share in your life. He goes on, he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. This a little bit harkens back to what we talked about last week, uh, but it, he says, be of the same mind, which is, is to hold the same opinion of one another. That we're to, we're to hold the same opinion of one another. Unified in this renewed kind of thinking and viewing each other as equally valuable. To be haughty in mind is to place myself above someone else. Think myself better than someone else. This is an easy place to go. In fact, I would guess many of us this morning could look around, don't look around, and think, yeah, I'm a little bit better than, than that person. We wouldn't want to say it. Like, we wouldn't use those words to ourselves, but we kind of know it. We kind of know we're just, we're just a notch above. They're great, but we're just a notch above. 
says, don't do that. Don't let that sort of thinking creep in. That's how the rest of the world thinks about everything. And if I'm not a notch above, I'm working to be a notch above. He says, level it out. View everyone as equally valuable. And I think a practical application of this is, is what he gives right there to associate with the lowly. If you would tend to think of a particular person as below you, then go associate with them. Go spend time with them. Hang out with them. If we're having a potluck, go sit at their table. Now, don't think the next time we have a potluck, if someone comes and sits at your table, it's because they think they're better than you. But, but you know what I'm saying. Like, go and seek them out. If we're having a game night, join their team. If, if we're, you know, we have all these small groups going this fall, go join their small group. You got a choice between a couple? I'm going to go join that one. Why? Because I might think of, I might tend to think of myself as better than that person. And I don't want to be there. I don't want to do that. I'm going to go associate with them. It's just a different way of thinking. Can we agree? Like, this is different. He says, do not be wise in your own estimation. It's the next one. Do not be wise in your own estimation. It is not our place to evaluate our own wisdom. We should not be sitting in a room and think, who's the wisest one in the room? Ah, it's me. Now, of course, we would never say this because we can't say things like this. This is totally inappropriate. But you know you've thought it, right? Like, I got to be the smartest person in the room. And he's saying only bad comes from that. That's not good. That's old thinking. That's not good thinking. That's not renewed thinking. When we say, you know what, I'm wise, come listen to me, people. Or why, why aren't people listening to me? I'm smarter than most of them. Or, you know what, I'm usually right. And others are usually wrong. Especially if they disagree with me, they're usually wrong, right? Or my, ma my opinion matters more than yours or most other people because I'm wiser than most other people. Wisdom is good, right? You can find that all over Scripture. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is a good thing. It's a good pursuit to be wise. We should pursue it. We should share our wisdom when appropriate with other people. What we should not do is judge ourselves wise. That's bad. That's negative. That's not good for you. That will only puff you up, which is a negative for you and other people. Because when you get puffed up, what happens to them? They get pushed down. And it actually demonstrates you're not as wise as you think you are. And you might be sitting here this morning and go, but what if it's true? Like, like what if I am the wisest person in the room? Do not dwell on that. Because it's not your role to evaluate that. If you are wise and live a wise life, others will seek you out. You don't have to hold that opinion of yourself in order to be someone who shares wisdom.
So don't hold that opinion by yourself. All right, he goes on. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Again, this is a natural thing. This is justice, right? Someone does something wrong to me. The right and proper response is doing something wrong to them. They're being evil to me. They need to get theirs. Hurt me, I'm justified in hurting you. Tear me down, you deserve to be torn down. Take something from me, I'm going to take something from you with a little interest. He says, don't do that. That's an old way of thinking. Do not give them what the evil they may deserve. None of these things are easy, right? All of these things, we've got to live in dependency upon God. We've got to go back to verse 1 of 12 when he says, in view of the mercies of God. We have to keep God's mercies in view all the time in order for these things to make any sort of sense. He says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect literally means just to take into consideration. To take into consideration what is seen right by others. Now, this one's weird. I think this one makes people a little bit uncomfortable. In fact, if you read enough commentaries, theologians are really uncomfortable with this idea because some of them are like, it sounds like what you're saying is, the, the, the people around us, the culture around us, is somehow determining what's right and wrong for us, and we can't have that. Well, we can if God's calling us to it, and he is. Which is to take into consideration what other people see as right and wrong, to consider it. I'll give you a couple examples. Kicking a dog... Nothing biblically wrong with that. Unless someone wants to go find some random, you know, hesitations 5-2. There is nothing wrong with kicking a dog, biblically. Is kicking a dog viewed wrong by most people? Yeah, so don't kick a dog, right? Take that into consideration. Uh, A little bit later in Romans, we're going to get into greeting one another with a holy kiss. When's the last time you did that? Well, that's a cultural thing, right? When we get to it, we'll talk about how it's locked into their culture. That's a cultural thing. We should not be greeting each other with holy kisses because that's not right in our culture, right? Maybe if you were in France or something, you could do the whole two-cheek kiss or whatever, right? Take it into consideration. Don't be so aloof and so, so above all of what's going on in our world that you don't understand people and understand how to love them with their view of the, the things that are right and wrong. Taking 23 items into the 15 items or less lane. You're going to get some dirty looks. Now, does this somehow imply that we ignore God's standards? No. Does that mean we just take all their standards and go, this is our new standard, our cultural, what our culture says? Of course not. He's been talking about that. That's not what he's talking about. We can do both. We can stand for what is good by God's standards and also love people by taking into account what they consider to be right and wrong. We can do both of those things. It's possible. He says, he goes on, he says, if it's possible, 
So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Pursue peace with everyone. All men, by the way, is not gendered. You know, sometimes the way we translate things uh, is, is, is correct, but, but, but can give us a, a skewed view. This is all human beings. Be at peace with all humans. Be at peace with everyone. Be at peace with the jerk. Be at peace with the pot stirrer who you end up at the raw end of that deal. Be at person with that person who is looking for any weakness you have to exploit it. You ever been around people like that? Just always looking for that one thing to yeah, get in there and get you. Pursue peace. Do everything you can to be at peace. We know that following Christ inevitably will cause conflict. There's just no way around it. But pursue peace in those moments. Don't stir it up. Don't make it worse. Just to be bullheaded. Don't pursue things that, that just unduly stir up problems between you and other people. What's not needed. Don't go pick fights with people. Do all that we can to stand for truth. That's what we're called to. And at the same time, pursue peace. I think this is very, very possible. It sounds hard. It sounds difficult. And that's why he puts it here. Go. This is a new way of thinking about things. Usually you're going to want to stick with your group of people who kind of coexist in a fun little peaceful bubble. But that's just not reality. That's not the place we need to be. There will be tensions between you and others. There will be tensions between us and other believers. Do everything we can do to maintain peace. Now, will that at times be beyond your control? 100%. That's why as far, it's, as, far as it depends on you, you pursue it with a clean conscience. I'm doing everything I can to try to meet this person where they're at. And that means, by the way, will there be times when you have done all that you can and you are still at odds with someone else? Yes. But just make sure you've done all you can. Which is probably going to mean you sacrificing, you being uncomfortable, you losing between you and that other person probably going to mean that. It's not the way we typically think, but it's the way that we're called to think. Renewed thinking. Last couple ones here. Verse 19 says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I already talked a little bit about this idea that, that the old way of thinking is that there's certain behaviors uh, that deserve an equal and opposite reaction to their behavior, right? Like, like I'm not going to scorch, scorch earth policy against this person. I'm not going to totally destroy them. But there needs to be some sort of equity here. There need, need, needs to be some sort of balancing out because they have so wronged me. 
I at least deserve a proportional response to this person. He says, that's the old way of thinking. The new way of thinking is, I'm mistreated, and I trust retribution for that to God. That's his responsibility, not my responsibility. I don't need to get back at that person. I may feel like I need to get back at that person. I may, with every feeling that's in me, want to bust out on that person, but it's not, that's, that's not my place. It's not my job to seek equity with that person, to get the vengeance that's needed. That's completely God's realm. New way of thinking. Instead, there is action that is needed on your part. This is not inaction. This is not, you've mistreated me, and so I'm going to leave it to God to repay. I'm going to do nothing. No, in fact, we're called to a response to that. This is what he says. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. We're actually called in that, in that moment, in that time, in that relationship where I'm being mistreated by someone to seek out what's their need? What, what, what do they have a, a need in? And most people, by the way, who thrash out and want to hurt others, there's a deep need that's there. Like, let me go find what that need is. Maybe it's a practical need. Maybe it's an emotional need. And I'm going to try to go meet it. This is crazy thinking. Can we agree? Like, this person has completely hurt me. And all I want to do to be the man God's called me to be is to walk away. Because I'm not going to get back at them. No, don't walk away. Stay there and figure out what they need. And go meet it. That person who's wronged you. Maybe that person that you've wronged and you're trying to seek their forgiveness, but they're never going to let that thing go. They're always going to hold it over your head. That person who humiliates you, stay in that humiliation and go, how can I serve this person? And he says, it will heap burning coals on their head. Which as far as we can understand of this phrase is it indicates like a sign of shame for them. If you think about it, our world generally looks down at bullies, right? So imagine a situation in where you have a bully bullying someone and that person going, okay, how can I serve you, bully? How can I meet your needs, bully? Is that going to turn out for the shame of the bully? For sure it is. For sure it is. And maybe that shame will drive them to their knees. Maybe that shame will cause them to be broken over their own sin. I can tell you what won't cause them to be broken over their own sin, you getting retribution. Won't. It's a different way of thinking. Can we agree? I mean, it just is so different than how we tend to think. He ends with kind of a summary, I think, of this whole idea. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome is literally to win, to win at a contest. 
The Padres know nothing about overcoming at this point in the season. I'll tell you that. They're terrible right now. Anyway, it's, it's winning, right? He says, don't overcome evil. Don't think you're going to win against the evil person by, with evil. Don't allow that evil to swallow you up and envelop you. Instead, spend your life, I need to spend my life going, I'm going to win. I'm going to win in this interaction with this person who's evil and mean and rude. I'm going to win. And how I'm going to win is with pure goodness. I'm not going to hold back anything good from this person. And most people would go, well, you're, you've just lost. You're just being a pushover. You're just allowing people to bully you. Right? That's our culture's understanding of things. In fact, most dads teach their boys, you better stand up for yourself, boy. Right? That's our culture. He says, no, the way to win is not to beat that guy up. The way to win is goodness. Goodness, goodness. The temptation is always going to be, is, is to play their game, to give them a taste of their own medicine, to put them in their place. Don't they deserve to be put in their place? But that's actually the way to lose. And if you think about it, really with all of this list of renewed thinking type things, but particularly with this one, who's overcome the world? Our Lord has overcome the world. He's won it. And how did he do it? By repaying evil for evil? No, by goodness and self-sacrifice. So just this question that's, that's on your handout, it's been big there, looming, if you looked at it this whole time. In which of these areas, these many, many, many areas, do you need to renew your thinking? I know I've got my three. Let me pray. Lord, um, help us to be transformed in our thinking. Help us to see your ways as good, even though they're just not obvious to us as a good in our lives. Help us to, to live this out. This is, this is superhuman, this list. It's beyond us in our own ability and our own strength. We can't accomplish this. So help us to pursue you. Help us to seek you. Help us to live in dependence upon you and allow your spirit to live out this new way of thinking and this new way of living. Transform us. Change us. Pray this all in your name.